everybody, this is Abby Alcox with Badgerland Journal, and today we have a special guest that we're doing another interview for, because Marquette, interestingly, has one of the largest collections of J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits, and I'm, The Hobbit, not The Hobbits, um, who, and I'm sure he knows more about everything in general when it comes to this topic, but welcome Dr. Bill Fliss. Hello. Thank you for having me, Abby. Yeah. So, fun fact, Bill's actually my boss, which is how I got him to do this. Well, uh, we're, we're working on a digital project together, yeah. Yes, not not anything to do with Tolkien. But, so I guess to start, because I've read The Hobbit once, but besides that, I'm kind of like not a great understanding of Lord of the Rings and kind of the world that Tolkien built. But were you interested in it before you started working with the Tolkien collection? Yeah, I was one of those nerds that you encountered probably in grade school and high school who was obsessed with J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, the fact that I work with the collection here at Marquette is really just coincidence. Um, there's no plan to it. It just sort of happened. But yeah, I was a fan from an early age. I think um, I was exposed to him through my older siblings when I was really little. We're talking like five, six years old was probably when I first heard his name. And, uh, and back in the, in the late 70s, they did an animated version of The Hobbit that they aired on television, and then they would put it out in theaters every once in a while. And I remember I saw that, and that was, and we had like the, um, the record set with the read-along book, and my, one of my brothers had that. And so I was, I got, you know, would listen to that all the time. And so that was my entry point into, into Tolkien. And then I eventually read the books and um, The Hobbit, and the Lord of the Rings, and then some of his other works as well, which his son Christopher published, brought together and published after J.R. Tolkien's death in 1973. Um, and so j just to sort of set the context on Tolkien, he was born in 1892, and he died in 1973. So he's been, he's been gone quite a while, um, but in the 50s he, he um, sold his manuscript collection to Marquette University's um, I can talk more about that, but uh, yeah, I was a, f a fan from an early age. So, like, what are some of your, like, favorite things? Because I know he, like, has built, like, this elaborate world. Doesn't he have, like, his, like, he built out an actual language? Yeah, he built out um, multiple languages. He sketched out a lot of languages. There are two languages that he um, spent a lot of time working on. Um, he called them his elvish tongues. There are two of them. And uh, he was a philologist by training. Philologist is a word we don't really use much anymore. Um, we would probably describe him as a comparative and historical linguist. He was interested as a scholar at Oxford University primarily on how languages um, develop and change over time. And he studied the evolution of languages and he studied the, the, the science of philology that was developed in the, in the 19th century, primarily by the Germans for studying language. And he, he learned philology so well that he could actually take all of his knowledge of how languages work and then use that knowledge to create his own languages. Um, there are a lot of other people in the world that do this. One of the, that's one of the things I've learned since I started working with this collection is that there's an actual hobby called conlanging. Uh, conlangers are people who construct their own languages. And I, I, I really didn't know that until there were a couple Canadian documentary filmmakers who showed up at Marquette that are doing a documentary on conlangers. And they were going around the world connecting with all these people in different cultures and countries that were conlangers. 
And what they found was that a common th thread uniting them all was that they, that they knew of Tolkien and that Tolkien had, in many cases, had inspired them to get into constructing their own languages. So they thought, well, we've got to work Tolkien into the documentary because he's been so important to people. So, um, so yeah, he was a conlanger, so he created the languages. And he, <clears throat> he said once that, that he really started by constructing the languages and then built the stories so that he'd have someone to speak his invented languages. Um, but he began working on this stuff when he was really young, when he was um, uh, a teenager, really. And uh, the ho he was the Hobbit. He wrote. He was already um, like about I don't know, forty-ish or so when he wrote the Hobbit, and then the Lord of the Rings. He wrote over the next several years. Uh, but so, the works he's most known for, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, came later in his life. But he'd been working on stories and mythological tales set in this imaginary secondary world of Middle Earth. And, uh, well, Arda is kind of the, the, technically the term Middle Earth is a part of Arda. And I, I mention that just for the, your listeners out there who are, are you know, are, are, are fans. And they'll, <laughs> if I just say Middle Earth, they'll say, no, it's, you know, Arda, you should say. <laughs> um, so uh, he began all this work at a, you know, at, at a much younger age. And then when he came to write The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the books he's most known for, he kind of sunk the stories back into the history of the tales that he'd been working on since he was a young man. Yeah. I remember like reading the Hobbit and like, it's so well thought out and like he describes everything so well. Although sometimes I'm just like, what's going on? Cause it like goes into the backstory, but you definitely have to put a lot of thought into all of that. Yeah. He was, he wrote, he started the Hobbit as uh, oral tales. He tells children like bedtime stories. And then he began writing it down. And so it really began not necessarily connected to the older myths and legends, but then the way I like to think of it is that the, the stories that he started working on as a young man were kind of like a, almost like a star that had this gravitational pull. And so when he starts this work of The Hobbit, it gets pulled into orbit around this legend, body of legends that he created. And so you have in The Hobbit names like Elrond or the High Elves or Gondolin terms that enter into the hobbit that come out of the mythology that he'd been working on since he was um a young man okay so can we talk about so like he went to oxford or taught at oxford and he attended University. oxford as well and he attended yep yeah so why is it the collection at oxford how did it end up all the way in milwaukee wisconsin that's a good question it is kind of strange because tolkien was english but he never set foot in the united states so milwaukee wisconsin is a very odd place to find these materials and, and let me before i answer that fully let me just explain for people what we have so we have the manuscripts for uh four of his works of fiction um the hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, which are the two biggies, as you mentioned, the ones people are most familiar with. We have a, a children's book he did, an illustrated children's book, and then another story that's not, not set in, called Far Farmer Giles of Ham, which is not set in Middle Earth or in Arda. Um, so that's what we own. We own the manuscripts for those works. All the other papers, so all the works of the broader legendarium, that he, the stories I was telling you about that he was working on from when he was a young man, those, his academic papers, the family papers, those are at Oxford University. So what happened is that in 1956, at the end of 1956, a 
fellow from Marquette University named William Reedy, who was the director of the library, the brand new library, the Memorial Library, which Marquette um, uh, had just had recently constructed. He, as director, approached Professor Tolkien and asked if he would consider selling his manuscripts to Marquette because one of Reedy's jobs was to stock this library with books and manuscripts. And so he identified Tolkien as somebody whose manuscripts he wanted, and he approached him through a, through a friend, a friend of his that he hired to be Marquette's agent. And he, Marquette was the first to ask, um, and Tolkien said yes and sold the manuscripts in 1957. And so it's almost 66 years uh, the manuscripts have been here. Um, And I imagine there probably are some people in the UK and people in Oxford who may think this, you know, is the the fish that got away, you know, that we got the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings stuff, but it was done a long time ago. And, you know, now the important thing to know is that um, in the culture of manuscript collecting in England at the time, in the middle of the 20th century, it, things weren't really considered valuable unless they were really old, because English history is so old. So if something wasn't hundreds of years old, it wasn't seen as being valuable. So more recent authors or living authors, the, the archives in England weren't collecting them. That's changed, but at, at the time they didn't. And so what you had are a lot of Americans who would come over, American collectors, institutions that would come over and, and get this stuff because the, the English weren't as interested in it. And so this is an example where Tolkien's manuscripts, which now today, um, if say they were still owned in, in, in England, would never leave England, but they got here because um, there was this window of opportunity that William Reedy was there to acquire them for Marquette. Um, now, now it's changed. Now the English are, and the British are much better at collecting living authors, papers from living authors. Um, so in a way, w- William Reedy was just had the great perception to ask. He was in the right place at the right time. He caught Tolkien at the right time and uh, was able to pull off what, what is, I think, one of the great acquisitions in archival history. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure the English probably woke up and was like, if we don't start collecting these, then all the Americans are going to have all of our manuscript collections. Yeah. um, There's a librarian uh, who's also a poet laureate of England named Philip Larkin, famous poet. But in 1979, he gave an address, um, like a public address to an audience of librarians and archivists where he said he basically made the same argument. You know, we have to start collecting these living authors or the Americans and others are going to just come in and, and take all these cultural treasures out of the United, out of the United Kingdom, uh, and so that was 1979. So in, since then, they've, like I said, they've, they, they've definitely changed, and they, they collect much more recent things. Yeah. So, what is your favorite item or favorite items in the collection? Because it's grown a little bit. Like, obviously, you have your original manuscripts, but like, I think the I've been in the room where there's like a bunch of different copies of the Hobbit, like editions. Yeah. The the manuscripts are the heart of the collection, and by manuscripts, it, what, what, what that means is that Marquette owns almost all the material that went into writing the books. So The Lord of the Rings, for example, it's a 1,200-page book. If you buy it and read it, it's really long. But there are over 9,000 pages of manuscript material for The Lord of the Rings, different drafts of chapters, plot notes, all this kind of stuff, um, some maps, some sketches. Uh, 
so it's a huge collection. That's an important thing to know right off the bat. And, and since then, we have developed, we have collected books about Tolkien. We try to collect everything that's published on Tolkien. We document the fandom. Um, we uh, collect you know, dissertations that have been published on Tolkien, that sort of thing. But the manuscripts really are the heart of it. So when you ask, like, what's my favorite thing, it probably it would be something out of the manuscript collection. Um, like, it's tricky to say because with an archives and an ar- with archival collections, things have value in relationship to other things. So oftentimes it's not just like a single page I, one can point to, but a page may be part of a draft, and maybe that larger draft is is like the really cool thing where the single page isn't as, as important. Um, we do have some standalone items that are pretty cool. Um, among those, I guess... There, there are some pages of doodles where, where Tolkien is doodling. Uh, he was a doodler, and uh, those are really cool because they capture his thought process because he's, he's he, as a linguist, he was thinking a lot about languages and words, and you can tell as he's doodling that he's riffing on different words and, and uh, drawing little pictures. and just a, It's a fascinating window into his mind. So that, that kind of manuscript, I guess, would maybe be my, my favorite. But it's tough to say because it always, it, it, it changes a lot. It's sort of like, you know, this week I like, I really like this one. And then next month it may be something I haven't really noticed before. But that'll become my favorite because, oh, I haven't really seen this before. Well, I imagine if it's a 9,000 page manuscript, like, you obviously kind of know what's in it. But you could always, like, rediscover something or, like, like you said, see something new. Yeah, yeah. I, I have handled and every touched every doc every all the pages because I, when i when i became the curator about 10 years ago one of the first things i did was an audit i went through and accounted for, wanted to account it for every page to make sure we had them and, and that um, make sure the counts matched up because um they're very valuable i mean incredibly valuable you, you, scraps of of man, some scraps of manuscript have gone up on auction or tolkien's letters have gone up on auction at auction houses and they they always sell for lots of money I was going to say, because it's not, like, a huge problem, but, like, obviously there's a security around collection. Has anyone ever, like, tried to take anything from the collection when they come to view it? Um, n- no, we've been really careful about that um, in the past 30 years. There was a realization once Tolkien... So so Marquette, you know, buys this in 1957. That's when the deal was done. And the manuscript started arriving later in 1957. Um and Tolkien didn't die until 1973, so he was alive for several years while we had it. And when an author dies, that's when the value of their manuscripts really increases. Um, and so after Tolkien died in 1973, Marquette realized that, that this was a really valuable collection that they had. And so they took steps to preserve it and protect it. So, for example, um, in the late 70s, around like 1980, 81, 81, I think, Marquette microfilmed the manuscript collection that it had at the time. And microfilming, for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's basically taking 35-millimeter photographs of the um, the manuscripts, the papers, and then and then it's on a, a, a microfilm reel, and you put it in a microfilm reader with light, and it, it projects light and allows you to... to, to it's, a, it's sort of a, a pre-digital way to go th- you know to miniaturize yes yes long before then a way to miniaturize information and so an entire collection could be put on a reel of microfilm and then 
read through a microfilm reader. And so Marquette did that so that people coming would be working with the microfilm and not the originals. Uh, the only time originals were really brought out after a certain point was when, if there was something on the original that really needed to be seen, like a, a very light pencil stroke or something that wasn't completely legible on the microfilm, then we might bring out the original so people could take a look. But it's a very supervised process um, because these are quite valuable. Okay. So I have to check my next question. Uh, well, I guess coming back to the idea of like people will like flock to Marquette to look at these documents, you know, all of these different Tolkien fans, because this is really a like worldwide fandom. Um, so where are some of the more like interesting places that people have come to visit Marquette from to see this collection? Oh, so we have people who come for a variety of reasons. Like you say, you know, there's a lot of fans in the world. So some fans will come just because they're passing through Milwaukee and they want to make some sort of connection with the collection. They know that it's here. So the, so we are kind of a pilgrimage site for pilgr Tolkien fans coming through the area. So what we've what we've done for them is we have a permanent display of some reproductions from the manuscript collection on display in our reading room in the library where people can pop in. In fact, just right around the lunch hour, there were three people from out of state. I'm not exactly sure where they're coming from, but they were in the area, and so they popped in to take a look. So they came in in the reading room, and they looked at the display for a few minutes and read, read what we had and looked at the manuscripts that are on display and then, and then left. So that happens quite a bit. I don't always interact with everybody who comes through but it is a wide range of people. But then we also have researchers who are, are more than just the casual fan who want to just see something. They, they actually are coming to study the manuscripts, to learn and research and write about Tolkien's works. And so we have far fewer of those. But in terms of researchers who've come in since I've been here, um, the, I've, there, have, there was uh, a couple come to mind. There's a, a scholar in Japan, Yoko Hemi, who came you know, from Japan to, to read the manuscripts. She was here for a few weeks. And her specialty as an academic is Old English, um, what, what was once called the Anglo-Saxon Anglo language. Now it's usually referred to as Old English. Uh, that's her specialty. So it's kind of neat to see a, a woman coming from Japan, a Japanese woman, to study Old English in Milwaukee looking at these manuscripts. Um, because Tolkien, what, Old English was a specialty of Tolkien, and so there's a lot of Old English influences in the language and characters and story of, of The Lord of the Rings. So she was here studying that sort of thing. So that was pretty neat to see somebody come from Japan. Um, there, we've also had a researcher who is doing a, a doctoral student who's doing her dissertation on Tolkien uh, who came from New Zealand, came all the way um, from there to visit and do research as well. So uh, I'm interpreting your question to ask, what, what's the most exotic place somebody has come yeah. from? And so the, the other, that's literally the other end of the world, New Zealand and, and Japan. I mean, it's, it's a yeah. long flight to get to, uh, to the United States and to Milwaukee of all places. So, but, but, but people might drift in from, could be a lot of places. Um, just I've had chance encounters with people from the Netherlands or from Germany. Those are countries with very strong Tolkien fan groups who, for what one reason or another, are in Milwaukee, and so they pop in to take a look. Well, I know there's a gentleman that's in my, like, cohort of the history grad program, and he, like, came to Marquette 
for our program specifically because of the Tolkien collection. So. Yeah, there have been a few students who have been really been drawn to Marquette because we have the manuscripts. Um, n now, now that works. In the past, it didn't work so well, and this is this is I think I think interesting. I don't know if your listeners will think it interesting, but <laughs> but I think it's interesting that um, years ago we had you know we had this world famous manuscript collection, but. Nobody really, nobody at Marquette really studied it because Tolkien, even though he was an academic, um, he's not really been historically for a period was never really treated with respect by the academic community uh, because he wrote these fantasy books and fantasy was looked down upon as not really worth serious study, and that's changed. But in, in earlier generations. Uh, students couldn't write about Tolkien here. So, for example, there's a, a wonderful Tolkien scholar named John Ratliff who actually has his Ph.D. from Marquette. He came to Marquette in the early 1980s because he ha we had the Tolkien collection. He wanted to write his doctoral dissertation on Tolkien, and he was told flat out by the English department, you're not writing a dissertation on Tolkien because they didn't, they didn't take Tolkien seriously enough. They didn't think he was worth a dissertation. Uh, and so John Ratliff ended up writing on a different person. And then after he got his degree, he became a world-famous Tolkien scholar. <laughs> but um, but, but that, there's, there was a prejudice against Tolkien. But that's changed. Uh, that, the old, that older generation has died off, basically. And the newer generation of scholars and academics, many of them grew up reading Tolkien. And so they're much more open to people studying him. And um, and plus, just what people write dissertations about has changed a lot, especially in English. I mean, you you can write about so many different things. There's there's much less of a, a sense that there's like a canon of accepted works you have to stick to. I mean, people are writing dissertations about cookbooks and stuff. You know, it's, yeah. it's like anything goes really. So Tolkien is 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 fair game now, and people have um, people even here at Marquette now are writing uh, uh, dissertations. On Tolkien, similar yeah. to, like the gentleman you just mentioned. Yeah, well, it's crazy to think like this person has this like large of a reach, but he's not worthy of being studied. You know, people all all over the world are interested in him. So, well, there's a little, you know, there there can be a, a snobbish elitism to academia. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so then, going off of this, I think you had mentioned this to me. So C.S. Lewis, who wrote like the Chronicles of Narnia. Do people, I heard someone told me that people of his fandom come to the Tolkien collection. Yeah, they're, they're, the two men knew each other, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. They were friends. They were good friends, very close friends for many years. And so, and they were interested in the same sorts of things. And so uh, both are very popular authors. Like you say, Lewis did um, The Chronicles of Narnia is probably what he's most famous for. But he wrote a lot of other novels and works including like science fiction, um, apologetics, sort of religious uh, tracts, um, novels, uh, and academic, serious academic works as well. Uh, so he's very well known. And so there is a fandom around Lewis as well as Tolkien, and the two are kind of joined. And so there are oftentimes people who are fans of Lewis are also fans of Tolkien and vice versa. It's not always the case, but oftentimes it is. And so if someone's interested in Lewis, they may end up coming here to learn about Tolkien or to see something Tolkien as well. Um, so that yeah, they they were close pals um, in in Oxford, along with uh, um, some a number of other f 
writers and Oxford academic types that uh, coalesced together in a group called the Inklings. And Lewis and Tolkien were, I think, maybe the heart of that group of the Inklings. Yeah, probably the people, like, uh, the average person probably has some awareness of, like, I don't know. I feel like most people know who, like, J.R.R. Tolkien is or C.S. Lewis. Yeah, definitely, whereas people like um, Charles Williams, another of the Inklings, he's probably the next most famous, but he's generally known more just in literature circles, honestly. Yeah. So then you mentioned, like, the manuscripts don't really come out of the collection that often. But there, it's over now, but there was this whole exhibit that you were part of putting together at the Haggerty, which is also part of Marquette's campus. Um, so I guess I'm curious, like, what was that process like, picking things to, like, put in to the collection to be viewed by fans? Um, oh, it was a lot of work. That exhibition took a long time. And um, as you say, it was here at Marquette. It was at the Haggerty Museum. It ran last fall. And it did provide an, us an opportunity to showcase what we have in the collection, because if someone just walks in the door wanting to see the collection, they'll they get to see the display in the reading room. But those are reproductions, not and they're not the originals, because of the value and the fragility. We don't bring the originals out. So, but but people do want to see them from time to time, and so this exhibition was a great way to allow people throughout the Midwest, and we had people coming from all over the world actually to to to, to the exhibition. It gives them a chance to to see the manuscripts and, and enjoy them. So it was a long process. And it's important to know as context for our exhibition that there have been a number of exhibitions in recent years on Tolkien. And Marquette, uh, because we have the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit manuscripts, uh, institutions will come to us wanting to borrow our manuscripts to put on display in their exhibition because it's very difficult to have a an exhibition on Tolkien it, with in, in and exclude the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I mean you can do it because he wrote a lot of other things and there are fans that prefer those other things to the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. But most people if you want it to be a popular exhibition you've got to really include the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and so we had um, Oxford University approached us in 2000 for an exhibition in 2018. Um, that same exhibition was also mounted at the Morgan Library in New York City, in Manhattan, uh, the following year. And then the French National Library uh, contacted us wanting to do an exhibition in the 2019 into 2020. And so we loaned a large number of manuscripts that uh, made the trip over to Paris and were on display there for several months to give uh, French fans a chance to see the the manuscripts. And it was really at that exhibition in France that the idea was born that Marquette should do an exhibition as well. I honestly can't claim credit for the idea. It was a situation <laughs> where the dean of the library and the director of the, the Haggerty Museum hatched the plan. And so it was one of those as like, oh, we want to do an exhibition, make it happen, you know, <laughs> where, where my role is to sort of realize this, this, this vision. So um, I worked on it. So, so we began the planning for it at the end of 2019. And um, it, this, I've never done a museum exhibition before. And so I had help from the Haggerty Museum, from the people there. But then also at, at the suggestion of one of the Haggerty people, uh, I was put in touch with somebody that I had actually met before 
a couple of years earlier, an art historian named Sarah Schaefer, who teaches across town at UW-Milwaukee. And we had met when I was doing some public showings of the manuscripts, not form a formal exhibition, but just some public showings that I would periodically do to get them, you know, to allow people to come in and see the manuscripts. And she had attended one of these. And so we met, so we sort of knew each other, but she was recommended as somebody to bring on to help. And uh, it was a great, great idea because Sarah and I became really good friends co-curating this exhibition. We really worked at it together. And I don't think either of us could have done it without the other because I've never done a museum exhibition. I'm not an art, an art historian. She brought a, a, an artistic angle to it and knowledge of art history that I don't have. And although she's a good, she's a big Tolkien fan, you know, I'm more immersed in it than she is, generally speaking. Um, plus also, um, I had the the connections with the Tolkien estate to be able to get the necessary permissions to be able to to do the exhibition. Well, and wasn't some of I read a like little article before this. Wasn't some of the things on display from the Oxford collection as well, or through? It was a different part of a collection that was on loan to us for exactly. our exhibit. Yeah, it's kind of a, it was kind of a two way street with the loaning. Uh, we we loaned them stuff in in two thousand eighteen for their exhibition, and so we approached them asking, well, could we borrow some things from your collection and they were incredibly generous in allowing us to borrow more pieces than we borrowed from them uh, and so th so those were brought over as well to augment the um, uh, the exhibition that we were having and it was just really wonderful to bring all that together and it made it a very special exhibition so as we've said, it's 9,000 pages. I'm assuming you didn't display all 9,000 pages of this no, manuscript. No, yeah, you asked about selection, didn't you? Um, getting back, yeah. So we had to come up with a vision for the exhibition, and we wanted to do something different than what the previous exhibitions had been. The one at Oxford, you know, Tolkien spent most of his adult life in Oxford, so that one was very biographical in focus. So they had manuscripts, but they also had, like, uh, his pipe on display, his, his academic gowns, fan mail, um, different uh, artifacts on display as well. Milwaukee is not Oxford. We, 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 we really weren't going to do a biographically focused exhibition. And then the French one, which was enormous, it was hu a huge exhibition, um, they were really pitching it towards a, I think, towards a French population that uh, doesn't know as much about Tolkien. So I think they were trying to encourage interest in Tolkien in France. I mean, fr there's a French Tolkien society, a couple of them, I think, a couple, yeah, a couple different groups, and there, there, there's a fan base, but it's not as big. I think it's safe to say as you have in the United Kingdom or here in the United States, and so. I think that the BNF, they wanted to try to, the organizers of that, they wanted to try and expand the fan base and introduce him to a French population. So theirs was much more like a meet J.R.R. Tolkien sort of thing. Yeah. So we wanted to approach this differently because we, we, you know, we didn't have the resources to do something on the scale of what, what these other institutions had done. And, and we also wanted to play to Marquette's strengths. And Marquette's, strength, Marquette's strengths are the manuscripts. Because Tolkien was an artist too, he did paintings and, and drawings. We have some sketches, but most of the, what most people would consider the the formal artwork is actually over in the holdings at the Bodleian in Oxford, and that's a bunch. That a lot of that was stuff that we then borrowed. So, 
yeah. the paintings and that sort of thing, which we don't have. We could bring into our, our exhibition. But we wanted to really make Marquette's collection the heart of it. And so we focused on this idea of the art of the manuscript. And we wanted to place Tolkien in the history of manuscript studies and um, the creation of manuscripts. As Tolkien's really interesting. As, as, as a medievalist, as a scholar, he was very familiar with manuscripts. He, he would work with old manuscripts. He would study old manuscripts. And then as a, as a creator of these of the secondary world and these stories, he produced his own manuscripts. Um, and, and what's even more interesting is that within his created world, manuscripts appear in the story. Manuscripts are key to understanding and things going on in the tales. And so we wanted to kind of bring that all together. And so it's very, in our exhibition, and so it was very manuscript-focused. Uh, the art of the manuscript in terms of also just the, the beauty with which he would create these manuscripts. He, uh, sometimes with his doodles or with the title pages he would write or the, the, the um, penmanship he would use because he was a talented calligrapher. Uh, the manuscripts themselves are like works of art. Some of them that we had on display, if you, if you just, say, took them and showed them to somebody, they would probably think they're a medieval manuscript because sometimes Tolkien as a linguist, he was doodling or, or writing in Latin, for example, using scripts, font styles that are sort of medieval. And so you'd think it's a medieval manuscript, but it was actually something from the 1950s. See, I'm not a Tolkien fan, but now I'm super interested because this, uh, I don't know, you just have to be a very intelligent person to do all of this and to have that knowledge and to build up yeah, and I think he has. Yeah, I mean, he was a rare f fellow. I mean, I really honestly think he was a genius, and that's why people are, people like the stories, but um, it took a t special kind of person to be able to pull those off. And he's had a, he's cast a long shadow on fantasy as a genre. I mean, m fantasy writers, there's been so many fantasy writers that have come after him that, um, have done works that are very derivative of Tolkien or modeled on yeah. Tolkien. Uh, I mean, not everybody's that way, but uh, all all fantasy writers seem to have to have to come to some sort of reckoning with Tolkien, whether it's to mimic him in some ways or to reject him completely and go in other directions. But everybody, the fantasy authors I've talked to, all seem in some w way or another to be in dialogue with Tolkien. Well, I mean, I know because I grew up with like Harry Potter, like that was my fantasy. But I know like listening to um, like interviews with the author, she had said like kind of similar of like building this world. Like she has what's in the book, but then she also has everything else that's around the like history of the world and how it functions. And I feel like that's kind of, I don't know for sure if she was influenced by Tolkien, but seems kind of reminiscent of building up this world and then just placing a story in it, like having all of this background. Yeah, there are a lot of world builders. I mean, her, hers are set in the contemporary world, yes. but ha it has this fantastical wizardry dimension to it. So there's like this parallel world building yeah. of, of a wizarding world that she's creating that goes alongside our own. Yeah, that world building aspect is, that's I think Tolkien's, uh, the thing he's probably most known for and um, admired by fans it was his ability to create such a believable world that you can enter and um, you feel like you're really a part of it and it, it makes sense within itself. Yeah. 
So speaking of the fans, because this is still an ongoing project by you, is there's this um, Tolkien fandom oral history collection that Marquette is like collecting, but you as kind of the head archivist is um, in charge of it. Um, Can you speak to kind of what that is and how our listeners, if they are fans, would they be able to participate? Well, they'd definitely be welcome uh, to participate. There are no, there's no threshold of fanishness that somebody has to meet in order to contribute to the collection. But it's an oral history collection where Tolkien fans can contribute up to three minutes of testimonial about their relationship with Tolkien, why they're a fan, what Tolkien's meant to them in their lives. And it, uh, unlike the exhibition, this one was my idea. I was the one I came up with this. And it was actually several years ago now, although I've only really since 2019 have, been, have gone public with it. But it's an attempt to cast a wide net and bring in voices of Tolkien fans uh, into the collection, um, talking about these basic questions of when they first encountered Tolkien, why they're a fan, and if he's had any meaning to them in their lives. And... Uh, it, these are audio interviews, so similar to this podcast. They're, they're like brief audio captures that I'll do either in person, face-to-face with a digital voice recorder, or online through Zoom. I'll use Zoom and meet up with fans and then record the meeting and then extract the audio and edit, edit it and then add it into the collection. And this is, an, this is a digital collection. It's online, and as I and build the collection, I add new interviews to the site. And so on the site, one can listen to the actual interview if they want to listen to it, or they could read a transcript of it, or they could, um, they can keyword search across the transcript if they're looking for particular names or characters or whatever places in the stories. Um, And then also the last thing I've done to make it interesting to scholars is I take all the the testimonial, the transcript, and then some demographic variables like age, gender, location, and put them in a simple data set people can download from Marquette's institutional repository. And then they can, they can read and study them and use digital tools to mine through the, through the, man, through the, uh, the, the interviews. Now, the value of that depends on there being a lot of interviews. And I set a very high number when I conceived of the project. I mean, my goal before I'm done with this is 6,000 interviews, so 6,000 fans I'd like to capture. And there's a reason for that, and it's tied in a very nerdy way to The Lord of the Rings. But in the story of The Lord of the Rings, for those of you who are familiar with it, uh, one of the key cultures in the story is the kingdom of Rohan, and they're, they're the horse lords. Their, their, their culture is built, it's a warrior culture built around horses on the plains. And in the story, the king of Rohan leads his people, uh, his, his host of, of warriors, uh, to fulfill an oath to try to raise the siege of an allied city, Minas Tirith. And he leads 6,000 riders. And so I decided, well, I'll, I'll create like a host of fans and I'll have one fan for each of the riders of Rohan. So that's how I set 6,000 as the goal. Now, I've got a long way to go. I'm um, over 1,100 I've collected, but still, that's a long way to go. Um, so if anybody is interested in contributing to this, uh, it is possible just to go to to Google it, Marquette Fandom Oral, Tolkien Fandom Oral History or something like that, or go to our website and look. 
uh, and you can sign up online for a, a time with me to um, contribute an interview. I have a, a calendar you can go in and grab a, a time slot, and then I send you a Zoom link, and then we meet up. Um, alternatively, if somebody is in the area, they can contact me and arrange to do the interview face-to-face. -face. I'll do that yeah. as well. I can also link it down in the description of this episode. Oh, that would anyone, be nice. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> great. That would, that would save people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is there anything interesting you have heard from, like, different fans? Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot of great stories. Um, a lot. And I have to – but I think I did a tally just recently – now, 81% of the interviews I've done have come from the United States, but the other 19% are from outside the U.S. And so um, the Internet and Zoom has really allowed me to connect up with fans around the world in a way that I wouldn't have been able to if I'd done this. You know, something, if somebody had tried to do this 20 years ago, it wouldn't, wouldn't have worked, 10, even 10 years ago. <clears throat> so there are a lot of different countries that, that I've gotten interviews from. And actually during the pandemic, during lockdown, it was one of the things I was able to keep doing was collecting these interviews because I could arrange to meet with the fans. And so people might tune in from a lot of different, I, I, I think, uh, I can't remember right offhand, I think 42 countries I have, 42 different countries I have fans from. In some cases, it's only one or two fans, maybe that so far. Like Indonesia, I think I there's one fan from Indonesia, um, but but still, it's kind of neat to have that wide yeah. wide voice. Um, so yeah, there there are certainly patterns that emerge, and I've I've looked at them. I, I I'm not making it my goal or my job to analyze these in great detail. I'm leaving that to the scholarly community, people who study fandom, because fandom actually is a a bona fide academic subdiscipline fan yeah. studies people there are peer-reviewed journals uh, about fan fan studies well especially with the internet and the fact that you can connect fandoms now i feel like it's making it more and more of a something worth studying oh definitely yeah i mean one could argue that creating fandoms is central to economics you know like if somebody's coming out with something they want to build a fandom around it yeah. It's almost a marketing thing. It's it's like everything is so fandom-oriented now that it's of great interest. And Tolkien fandom is something that emerged before this really, the fandom phenomenon it's really developed. It's the first developed. fandom. Well, yeah, I mean, technically Sherlock Holmes is generally considered from the late 19th century. He was like the, like the first fandom craze. But there have been some other ones. But Tolkien certainly predates Star Wars, for example. Yeah. Um, and some of the fandoms that are more familiar nowadays, like the Marvel um, fandoms. Although, depending on the timing of the early Marvel stuff, which I'm not a Marvel expert, so um, I don't want to say like something wrong. Maybe there are there's some comics com before that. There, there's or... some com there's some comic fandoms that precede Tolkien. That's quite possible, but um, he's definitely uh, uh, known to a lot of people, and there are. And, I, and people want to study him. And so this, this collection of interviews is really a, a resource for people who want to study the fandom. So there are patterns that I've seen just emerge, different themes that come up uh, with Tolkien, um, some really fascinating stuff. I, hopefully people will, do, will dig into it much more deeply than, than I have in, with just cursory examination. I've done a couple talks here and there about the collection where I've teased out some of the themes that I've seen, but I haven't analyzed it i mean to the 
to the level of rigor that I would do if like I was publish a book on it or yeah. something. But I mean, there are some patterns that exist. I mean, the world, I mentioned the world building earlier, that that's the, his capacity to create a world that one can escape into is a great source of attraction to, to fans. Um, there's also kind of a, a, a very emotional, almost sort of moral connection with Tolkien in the sense that he really helps people because his books are full of virtues, virtues of hope, of courage, of endurance, of friendship, you know, fellowship. Uh, those themes really resonate with people, and the books ha are, are inspirational for many people. Like they read them for comfort, and they read them also almost as like aspirational books. I mean, some people have come flat out and said that Tolkien is like their Bible. You know, they, in fact, they find the moral lessons, the same kind of moral lessons the Bible is teaching, communicated more clearly, at least in a way that resonates with them through Tolkien than through actually picking up the Bible. So, it, <clears throat> so it's kind of interesting that one of the things I've picked up on is that, in a way, he's almost kind of a pseudo religion. Um, that a lot of the the reasons people turn to a religious tradition. Uh, what what that gives them and what they get from that, they're they're getting from Tolkien. Some people get from Tolkien, and so he almost is almost a religious figure in some ways. I personally, I don't I don't think he himself would would if he were alive would like that very much. <laughs> but you can't control what people do once you create something. So and I I could be wrong on this, but I was under the impression like C.S. Lewis like wrote on religion a little bit more with like at least I thought he did was like. Tolkien a religious man or did yeah, he Yeah, just... in fact that's why the that's why the collections here really is because Will, William Reedy in the 1950s he was looking for Catholic authors and Tolkien was a, a Roman Catholic. And so and Marquette's a Catholic Jesuit university so it made a lot of sense for the manuscripts to come here. So that that's kind of the that that's what led Reedy to approach Tolkien to get the to get okay. the manuscripts. Um, but yeah, but uh, and so, and their Christianity was something that Lewis and Tolkien shared in common, even though denominationally they weren't, you know, Tolkien yeah. was a Catholic, uh, Lewis uh, was Anglican. Um, but they definitely shared a, a, a common Christianity, and that um, was a source of connection between the two men. And you're right, I think Lewis wrote much more explicitly about religion, like he would actually write works that are considered... Um, uh, apologetic sort of defense of the faith. So he wrote like Mere Christianity was his, uh, maybe his most famous work, which was based off of some wartime radio programs he did in World War II on Christianity. Um, so he was much more of, uh, known as an explicit writer about the faith, whereas Tolkien never never wrote anything that was like a non-fictional treatise about religion. His, uh, it's more that the religion kind of comes through in the symbolism of the story and the situation and, and, and the way he crafted it and wrote it. Many people who study it are drawn to and, and identify and analyze the different religious themes that come up in there. Yeah, which I, didn't, I did not know that prior to this podcast that he was religious. Like I said, I'd known C.S. Lewis. That's just interesting. I definitely, for your Roman Catholic, I don't think you like being compared to, like, a god or a deity. Yeah, yeah, that's why I don't think, you know, people who who uh, sort of embrace his works as almost their religion, yeah, I don't know, he'd be, he'd be kind of, I'm guessing he'd be kind of shocked by it. But again, like I said, you know, when somebody creates something and puts it out for consumption, you lose all control yeah, over how people receive it. Yeah. yeah, and, this, and he, his works definitely have taken a, a life of their own. Yeah. 
Well, since you are much more an expert than I, is there any final thought you want to mention about Tolkien or anything about the collection? Um, he's a, just an endlessly fascinating person. Um, I will say though that you know he's not everybody's author. Like some people connect to him and some don't. He's not an author that I ever. I don't like proselytize for Tolkien in the sense of like getting like oh you gotta read Lord of the Rings because some people don't like that kind of work. It's a, he's one of these authors that resonates with some people but leaves other people completely cold. So for example, I I've really liked him from a very young age, but like my both of my parents who are now passed away, but neither of them liked Tolkien. I mean, he just wasn't their author. It's like yeah. the, the he he held no interest for them at all. I mean, they would listen to me talk about him, and they would humor me by if I was talking about him. But he just wasn't their author, and so I, I don't ever say to people, "Oh, you know, go out there and read Tolkien; you'll love it." Because maybe you won't. But if you do like fantasy, if you do are interested in works that are are, are um, kind of deep and rich with moral values, and that are present a secondary world that one can enter into and be a part of. Uh, if you like those sorts of things, um, and plus also he's influenced a lot by his knowledge of history and his knowledge of linguistics. And so if you, if you love picking up on those sorts of things in books uh, you know, or shows or whatever you might watch, then Tolkien, you might want to check Tolkien out because you, you may find that you've, you'll, you've a you, you may find that he's the beginning of a lifelong relationship. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and doing this interview with me. Yeah, thank and you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right. And until next time, actually, wait, I have to do one shout out. So this is for Nick and Maja because they are awesome fans. And I know Maja is a fan of Tolkien. So hopefully she will appreciate this episode. But that's all for now. And we will see you guys in another episode. Thank you.